My analysis of several hundred people who had accumulated fortunes well beyond the million-dollar mark disclosed the fact that every one of them had the habit of reaching decisions promptly and of changing these decisions slowly. People who fail to accumulate money, without exception, have the habit of reaching decisions, if at all, very slowly, and of changing these decisions quickly and often. One of Henry Ford's most outstanding qualities was his habit of reaching decisions quickly and definitely and changing them slowly. This quality was so pronounced in Mr. Ford that it gave him the reputation of being obstinate. It was this quality that prompted Mr. Ford to continue to manufacture his famous Model T, the world's ugliest car, when all of his advisors and many of the purchasers of the car were urging him to change it. Perhaps Mr. Ford delayed too long in making the change, but the other side of the story is that Mr. Ford's firmness of decision yielded a huge fortune, before the change in model became necessary. Some say that Mr. Ford's definiteness of decision was just obstinacy, but even this quality is preferable to slowness in reaching decisions and quickness in changing them. Editor's Comments Henry Ford's consistency extended also to the color of the Model T, 15 million of which in 19 years of production from 1908 to 1927 were made only in black and with little change in the design. Shortly after its introduction, Napoleon Hill met with Ford to talk about the principles of success. According to Hill, in Michael Ritt's biography of Napoleon Hill, A Lifetime of Riches, Henry Ford was cold, indifferent, unenthusiastic, and spoke only when forced to, unless he was talking about his car. Early on, few people other than Carnegie could foresee the success Ford would achieve, which Hill later attributed to Ford's self-control and concentrated effort. At Hill's first meeting with him in 1911, Ford was interested only in talking about the Model T. After Ford took him for a spin around the factory, Hill bought one, for $680. This is the end of the editor's comments. Making Your Own Decisions The majority of people who fail to accumulate the money they need are generally easily influenced by the opinions of others. They permit gossip, rumors, other people's opinions, and the news reporters to do their thinking for them. Opinions are the cheapest commodities on earth. Everyone has a flock of opinions they are ready to tell anyone who will listen. If you are too influenced by other people's opinions when you reach decisions, you will not succeed in any undertaking, much less in that of transmuting your own desire into money. If you are influenced by the opinions of others, you will have no desire of your own. Keep your own counsel. Rely on yourself to reach your own decisions when you begin to put these principles into practice and follow through on your decisions. Take no one into your confidence except the members of your mastermind group, and be very sure that you choose for your group only those who will be in complete sympathy and harmony with your purpose. Close friends and relatives, while not meaning to do so, often handicap one through opinions. And for some reason, even friends often seem to think that ridiculing you and your plans is funny. Thousands of men and women carry inferiority complexes with them all through life because some well-meaning but ignorant person destroyed their confidence through opinions or ridicule. 
You have a brain and mind of your own. Use it and reach your own decisions. If you need facts or information from others to help you reach decisions, acquire the facts or information you need quietly, without disclosing your purpose. It is characteristic of people who have a smattering of knowledge to try to give the impression that they know more than they do. Such people generally do too much talking and too little listening. Keep your eyes and ears open and your mouth closed if you wish to acquire the habit of prompt decision. Those who talk too much do little else. If you talk more than you listen, you may miss some important piece of knowledge that might have been very useful to you. By talking too much, you may also disclose your plans and purposes to people who will take great delight in defeating you because they envy you. Remember, every time you open your mouth in the presence of a person who really has knowledge, you tip your hand and show that person your exact stock of knowledge, or you tip your hand to your lack of it. The mark of genuine wisdom is modesty and silence. Keep in mind that every person is, like you, seeking the opportunity to accumulate money. If you talk about your plans too freely, you may be surprised when you learn that some other person has beat you to it by using the plans you bragged about. Let one of your first decisions be to keep a closed mouth and open ears and eyes. As a reminder to yourself, copy the following epigram in large letters and place it where you will see it daily. Tell the world what you intend to do, but first, show it. This is the equivalent of saying that deeds and not words are what count most. The value of decisions depends upon the courage required to render them. The great decisions that served as the foundation of civilization were reached by assuming great risks, which often meant the chance of death. Lincoln's decision to issue his famous Proclamation of Emancipation which gave freedom to African Americans, was rendered with full understanding that his act would turn thousands of friends and political supporters against him. When the rulers of Athens gave Socrates the choice of disclaiming his teachings or being sentenced to death, Socrates' decision to drink the cup of poison, rather than compromise in his personal belief, was a decision of courage. It turned time ahead a thousand years, and gave to people then unborn the right to freedom of thought and of speech. 56. Who Risked the Gallows The greatest decision of all time, as far as any American citizen is concerned, was reached in Philadelphia on July 4, 1776, when 56 men signed their names to a document that they well knew would bring freedom to all Americans, or leave every one of the fifty-six hanging from a gallows. You have heard of this famous document, the Declaration of Independence. But have you taken from it the great lesson in personal achievement it so plainly taught? We all remember the date of this momentous decision, but few of us realize what courage that decision required. We remember our history as it was taught. We remember dates and the names of the men who fought, we remember Valley Forge and Yorktown. We remember George Washington and Lord Cornwallis. But we know little of the real forces behind these names, dates, and places. We know even less of that intangible power that ensured freedom long before Washington's armies reached Yorktown. It is nothing short of tragedy that the writers of history have missed entirely 
even the slightest reference to the irresistible power that gave birth and freedom to the nation destined to set up new standards of independence for all the peoples of the earth. I say it is a tragedy because it is the same power that must be used by every individual who overcomes the difficulties of life and forces life to pay the price asked. Let us briefly review the events that gave birth to this power. The story begins with an incident in Boston on March 5, 1770. British soldiers were patrolling the streets, openly threatening the citizens by their presence. The colonists resented armed men marching in their midst. They began to express their resentment openly, hurling stones as well as epithets at the marching soldiers, until the commanding officer gave orders, Fix bayonets, charge. The battle was on. It resulted in the death and injury of many. The incident aroused such resentment that the provincial assembly, made up of prominent colonists, called a meeting for the purpose of taking definite action. Two of the members of that assembly were John Hancock and Samuel Adams. They spoke up courageously and declared that a move must be made to eject all British soldiers from Boston. Remember this. A decision in the minds of two men might properly be called the beginning of the freedom that we of the United States now enjoy. Remember, too, that the decision of these two men called for faith and courage because it was dangerous. Before the assembly adjourned, Samuel Adams was appointed to call on Hutchinson, the governor of the province, and demand the withdrawal of the British troops. The request was granted, and the troops were removed from Boston, but the incident was not closed. It had caused a situation that was destined to change the entire trend of civilization. Richard Henry Lee became an important factor in this story, because he and Samuel Adams corresponded frequently, sharing freely their fears and their hopes concerning the welfare of the people of their provinces. From this practice, Adams conceived the idea that a mutual exchange of letters between the thirteen colonies might help to bring about the coordination of efforts so badly needed in connection with the solution of their problems. In March of 1772, two years after the clash with the soldiers in Boston, Adams presented this idea to the assembly. He made a motion that a correspondence committee be established among the colonies, with definitely appointed correspondence in each colony, for the purpose of friendly cooperation for the betterment of the colonies of British America. It was the beginning of the organization of the far-flung power destined to give freedom to you and to me. A mastermind group had already been organized. It consisted of Adams, Lee, and Hancock. The Committee of Correspondence was organized. The citizens of the colonies had been waging disorganized warfare against the British soldiers through incidents similar to the Boston riot, but nothing of benefit had been accomplished. Their individual grievances had not been consolidated under one mastermind. No group of individuals had put their hearts, minds, souls, and bodies together in one definite decision to settle their difficulty with the British once and for all, until Adams, Hancock, and Lee got together. Meanwhile, the British were not idle. They, too, were doing some planning and masterminding, and they had the advantage of having behind them money and organized soldiery. A decision that changed history.
The Crown appointed Gage to supplant Hutchinson as the governor of Massachusetts. One of the new governor's first acts was to send a messenger to call on Samuel Adams for the purpose of endeavoring to stop his opposition by fear. You will best understand the spirit of what happened from this quotation of the conversation between Colonel Fenton, the messenger sent by Gage, and Adams. Colonel Fenton I have been authorized by Governor Gage to assure you, Mr. Adams, that the Governor has been empowered to confer upon you such benefits as would be satisfactory, an obvious endeavor to win Adams by promise of bribing him, upon the condition that you engage to cease in your opposition to the measures of the Government. It is the Governor's advice to you, sir, not to incur the further displeasure of His Majesty. Your conduct has been such as makes you liable to penalties of an act of Henry VIII by which persons can be sent to England for trial for treason, or misprision of treason, at the discretion of a governor of a province. But by changing your political course, you will not only receive great personal advantages, but you will make your peace with the king. Samuel Adams had the choice of two decisions. He could cease his opposition and receive personal bribes, or he could continue and run the risk of being hanged. Clearly, the time had come when Adams was forced to reach, instantly, a decision that could have cost his life. Adams insisted upon Colonel Fenton's word of honor that the colonel would deliver to the governor the answer exactly as Adams would give it to him. Adams' answer. Then you may tell Governor Gage that I trust I have long since made my peace with the King of Kings. No personal consideration shall induce me to abandon the righteous cause of my country and tell Governor Gage it is the advice of Samuel Adams to him no longer to insult the feelings of an exasperated people. When Governor Gage received Adams' caustic reply, he flew into a rage and issued a proclamation that read, I do hereby, in His Majesty's name, offer and promise His most gracious pardon to all persons who shall forthwith lay down their arms and return to the duties of peaceable subjects excepting only from the benefit of such pardon, Samuel Adams and John Hancock, whose offenses are of too flagitious a nature to admit of any other consideration but that of condign punishment. Adams and Hancock were on the spot. The threat of the irate governor forced the two men to reach another decision, equally as dangerous. They hurriedly called a secret meeting of their staunchest followers. After the meeting had been called to order, Adams locked the door, placed the key in his pocket, and informed all present that it was imperative that a Congress of the Colonists be organized, and that no man should leave the room until the decision for such a Congress had been reached. Great excitement followed. Some weighed the possible consequences of such radicalism. Some expressed grave doubt as to the wisdom of so definite a decision in defiance of the Crown. Locked in that room, were two men immune to fear, blind to the possibility of failure, Hancock and Adams. Through the influence of their minds, the others were induced to agree that, through the Correspondence Committee, arrangements should be made for a meeting of the First Continental Congress to be held in Philadelphia, September 5, 1774. Remember this date. It is more important than July 4, 1776. If there had been no decision to hold a Continental Congress, there could have been no signing of the Declaration of Independence. Before the first meeting of the new Congress, 
Another leader, in a different section of the country, was deep in the throes of publishing a summary view of the rights of British America. He was Thomas Jefferson, of the province of Virginia, whose relationship to Lord Dunmore, representative of the Crown in Virginia, was as strained as that of Hancock's and Adams with their governor. Shortly after his famous Summary of Rights was published, Jefferson was informed that he was subject to prosecution for high treason against His Majesty's government. Inspired by the threat, one of Jefferson's colleagues, Patrick Henry, boldly spoke his mind, concluding his remarks with a sentence that shall remain forever a classic. If this be treason, then make the most of it. It was such men as these who, without power, without authority, without military strength, without money, sat in solemn consideration of the destiny of the colonies, beginning at the opening of the First Continental Congress and continuing at intervals for two years, until on June 7, 1776, Richard Henry Lee arose, addressed the chair, and to the startled assembly made this motion. Gentlemen, I make the motion that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be, free and independent states, that they be absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and ought to be, totally dissolved. The Most Momentous Decision Ever Placed on Paper Lee's astounding motion was discussed fervently and at such length that he began to lose patience. Finally, after days of argument, he again took the floor and declared in a clear, firm voice, Mr. President, we have discussed this issue for days. It is the only course for us to follow. Why then, sir, do we longer delay? Why still deliberate? Let this happy day give birth to an American republic. Let her arise not to devastate and to conquer, but to re-establish the reign of peace and of law. Before his motion was finally voted upon, Lee was called back to Virginia because of serious family illness. But before leaving, he placed his cause in the hands of his friend, Thomas Jefferson, who promised to fight until favorable action was taken. Shortly thereafter, the President of the Congress, Hancock, appointed Jefferson as chairman of a committee to draw up a Declaration of Independence. Long and hard, the committee labored on a document that would mean, when accepted by the Congress, that every man who signed it would be signing his own death warrant should the colonies lose in the fight with Great Britain that was sure to follow. The document was drawn, and on June 28th, the original draft was read before the Congress. For several days it was discussed, altered, and made ready. On July 4th, 1776, Thomas Jefferson stood before the assembly and fearlessly read the most momentous decision ever placed on paper. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. When Jefferson finished, the document was voted upon, accepted, and signed by the fifty-six men, every one staking his own life upon his decision to write his name. By that decision, 
came into existence a nation destined to bring to mankind forever the privilege of making decisions. Analyze the events that led to the Declaration of Independence, and be convinced that this nation, which now holds a position of commanding respect and power among all nations of the world, was born of a decision created by a mastermind consisting of fifty-six men. Note well the fact that it was their decision that ensured the success of Washington's armies, because the spirit of that decision was in the heart of every soldier who fought with him, and served as a spiritual power which recognizes no such thing as failure. Note also, with great personal benefit, that the power that gave this nation its freedom is the same power that must be used by every individual who becomes self-determining. This power is made up of the principles described in this book. It will not be difficult to detect in the story of the Declaration of Independence at least six of these principles. Desire, decision, faith, persistence, the mastermind, and organized planning. Know what you want, and you will generally get it. Throughout this philosophy, you'll find the suggestion that thought, backed by strong desire, will transmute itself into its physical equivalent. The story of the founding of America and the story of the organization of the United States Steel Corporation are perfect examples of the method by which thought makes this astounding transformation. In your search for the secret of the method, do not look for a miracle, because you will not find it. You will find only the eternal laws of nature. These laws are available to every person who has the faith and the courage to use them. They may be used to bring freedom to a nation or to accumulate riches. Those who reach decisions promptly and definitely know what they want and generally get it. The leaders in every walk of life decide quickly and firmly. That is the major reason why they are leaders. The world has a habit of making room for the people whose words and actions show that they know where they are going. Indecision is a habit that usually begins when a person is young. It becomes more and more of a habit as the youth goes through grade school, high school, and even through college without definiteness of purpose. The habit of indecision goes with the student into the occupation he or she chooses. Generally, a young person just out of school seeks any job that can be found. Young people take the first job they can find because they have fallen into the habit of indecision. The vast majority of people working today are in the positions they hold because they lack the definiteness of decision to plan a definite position and the knowledge of how to choose an employer. Definiteness of decision always requires courage, sometimes very great courage. The 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence staked their lives on the decision to affix their signatures to that document. The person who reaches a definite decision to go after a specific job and make life pay the price he or she asks does not stake his or her life on that decision. They stake their economic freedom. Financial independence, riches, and desirable business positions are not within reach of the person who neglects or refuses to expect, plan, and demand these things. The person who desires riches in the same spirit that Samuel Adams desired freedom for the colonies is sure to accumulate wealth.
No man achieves great success who is unwilling to make personal sacrifices. Chapter 10 Persistence The Sustained Effort Necessary to Induce Faith The Eighth Step Toward Riches Persistence is an essential factor in the procedure of transmuting desire into its monetary equivalent. The basis of persistence is the power of will. Willpower and desire, when properly combined, make an irresistible pair. Those who accumulate great fortunes are sometimes called cold-blooded or ruthless. Frequently, it is simply because their critics simply don't understand that what they have is a strong desire, backed up by willpower, which they mix with persistence. It is the combination that ensures the attainment of their objectives. The majority of people are ready to throw their aims and purposes overboard and give up at the first sign of opposition or misfortune. A few carry on despite all opposition until they attain their goal. There may be no heroic connotation to the word persistence, but persistence does for your character what carbon does to iron. It hardens it to steel. The building of a fortune will involve the application of the entire 13 factors of this philosophy. These principles must be understood, and they must be applied with persistence by all who accumulate money. Your Test of Persistence If you are reading this book with the intention of seriously applying the knowledge, the first test of your persistence will come when you begin to follow the six steps described in the third chapter, Desire. Unless you are one of the few people who already have a definite goal and a definite plan for its attainment, you may read the instructions, but you will never actually apply them in your daily life. Lack of persistence is one of the major causes of failure. Moreover, my experience with thousands of people has proved that lack of persistence is a weakness common to the majority of people. However, it is a weakness that may be overcome by effort. The ease with which lack of persistence may be conquered will depend entirely upon the intensity of your desire. The starting point of all achievement is desire. Keep this constantly in mind. Weak desires bring weak results, just as a small amount of fire makes a small amount of heat. If you are lacking in persistence, this weakness may be remedied by building a stronger fire under your desires. Continue reading through to the end of this book. Then go back to chapter 3 and start immediately to carry out the instructions for using the six steps. The eagerness with which you follow these instructions will indicate clearly how much or how little you really desire to accumulate money. If you find that you are indifferent, you may be sure that you have not yet acquired the money consciousness that you must possess before you can be sure of accumulating a fortune. Fortunes gravitate to those whose minds have been prepared to attract them, just as surely as water gravitates to the ocean. If you are weak in persistence, focus on the instructions in Chapter 11, Power of the Mastermind. Surround yourself with a mastermind group, and through the cooperation of the members of this group, you can develop persistence. You will find additional instructions for the development of persistence in Chapter 5, Autosuggestion and in chapter 13, The Subconscious Mind. Follow the instructions in these chapters until you build up habits that convey to your subconscious mind 
a clear picture of the object of your desire. From that point on, you will not be handicapped by lack of persistence. Your subconscious mind works continuously while you are awake and while you are asleep. Are you money conscious or poverty conscious? Occasional effort to apply the rules will be of no value to you. To get results, you must apply all of the rules until they become a fixed habit with you. In no other way can you develop the necessary money consciousness. Just as money is attracted to those who have deliberately set their mind on it, poverty is attracted to those whose mind is open to it. And although money consciousness must be developed intentionally, poverty consciousness develops without conscious application of habits favorable to it. Poverty consciousness will seize the mind that is not occupied with money consciousness. If you understand the point of the preceding paragraph, you will understand the importance of persistence in the accumulation of a fortune. Without persistence, you will be defeated even before you start. With persistence, you will win. If you have ever had a nightmare, you will realize the value of persistence. You are lying in bed, half awake, with a feeling that you are about to smother. You are unable to turn over or to move a muscle. You realize that you must begin to regain control over your muscles. Through persistent effort of willpower, you finally manage to move the fingers of one hand. By continuing to move your fingers, you extend your control to the muscles of one arm until you can lift it. Then you gain control of the other arm. You finally gain control over the muscles of one leg and then extend it to the other leg. Then, with one supreme effort of will, you regain complete control over your muscular system and snap out of your nightmare. You did it step by step. You may find it necessary to snap yourself out of your mental inertia in a similar way. First, by moving slowly, then increasing your speed until you gain complete control over your will. Be persistent, no matter how slowly you may have to move at first. With persistence will come success. Snap out of mental inertia. If you select your mastermind group with care, you will have in it at least one person who will aid you in the development of persistence. Some people who have accumulated great fortunes did so because of necessity. They developed the habit of persistence because circumstances forced them to become persistent. Those who have cultivated the habit of persistence seem to enjoy insurance against failure. No matter how many times they are defeated, they finally arrive up toward the top of the ladder. Sometimes it appears that there is a hidden guide whose duty is to test us through all sorts of discouraging experiences. Those who pick themselves up after defeat and keep on trying finally arrive, and the world says, I knew you could do it. The hidden guide lets no one enjoy great achievement without passing the persistence test. Those who can't take it simply do not make the grade. Those who can take it are rewarded for their persistence, and in return they get the goal they are pursuing. But that is not all. They receive something infinitely more important than material compensation, the knowledge that every failure brings with it the seed of an equivalent advantage.
persist past your failures. The people who learn from experience the importance of persistence will not accept defeat as being anything more than temporary. They are the ones whose desires are so persistently applied that defeat is finally changed into victory. We see that an overwhelmingly large number of people go down in defeat, never to rise again. We also see the few who take the punishment of defeat as an urge to greater effort. But what we do not see, what most of us never suspect of existing, is the silent but irresistible power that comes to the rescue of those who fight on in the face of discouragement. If we speak of this power at all, we call it persistence and let it go at that. One thing is sure, if you do not have persistence, you will not achieve noteworthy success in any calling. As I am writing these lines, I can look out the window and see, less than a block away, the great mysterious Broadway, the graveyard of dead hopes, and the front porch of opportunity. From all over the world, people have come to Broadway seeking fame, fortune, power, love, or whatever it is that human beings call success. Once in a great while, someone steps out from the long procession of seekers, and the world hears that another person has conquered Broadway. But Broadway is not easily nor quickly conquered. Broadway acknowledges talent, recognizes genius, and pays off in money only after a person has refused to quit. The secret is always inseparably attached to one word, persistence. Editor's Comments Today we think of making it on Broadway in terms of the theater, but here Napoleon Hill uses Broadway as a metaphor for the New York arts, publishing, and entertainment industries in general. In the original edition of Think and Grow Rich, Hill used this introduction to tell of Fanny Hurst, one of the best-selling authors of the day, who pounded the streets of New York for four years and received 36 rejection slips from one publisher alone before her persistence paid off and she finally got published. Although Napoleon Hill chose Fanny Hurst to illustrate his point about overcoming poverty and adversity, he knew all about both from personal experience. Hill's own story is one of very humble beginnings and devastating failures that would have defeated most people. It was only through his extraordinary persistence that the original edition of the book you hold in your hands was published. And for that reason, the editors of this edition have included this brief biography of Napoleon Hill. The following is adapted from A Lifetime of Riches, The Biography of Napoleon Hill, written by Michael J. Ritt, Jr. and Kirk Landers and also draws upon Napoleon Hill's first bestseller, his four-volume masterwork, Law of Success. In it, Hill told of the seven turning points in his own life, and those excerpts told in his words are told in the first person. Born into poverty in the backwoods of Virginia, young Knapp, as he was called, was the local gun-toting troublemaker. He would probably have ended up a criminal had his widowed father not met and married Martha Ramey Banner. Knapp's new stepmother set out to change the family's mountain ways, and she started by trading Napoleon a typewriter for his six-shooter pistol. She told him, If you become as good with a typewriter as you are with that gun, you may become rich and famous and known throughout the world. Her faith and encouragement turned young Knapp around, and by the age of fifteen, he was submitting stories to the local newspapers and doing everything he could to get himself out of his meager circumstance. 
After completing high school and one year at a business college, he wrote an audacious letter to Rufus Ayers, one of the most powerful men in the coal industry. Hill wrote to apply for a job, but he said that he didn't want a salary. In fact, he said he would pay Ayers. Hill proposed that Ayers could charge him whatever he wanted on a monthly basis, but if at the end of three months Hill had proved his worth, he then would expect Ayers to pay him a salary of the same monthly amount. Ayers admired Hill's style and hired him with pay. First Turning Point After finishing a course at a business college, I took a job as stenographer and bookkeeper. As a result of having practiced the habit of performing more work and better work than that for which I was paid, I advanced rapidly until I was assuming responsibilities and receiving a salary far out of proportion to my age. Hill also proved to be so trustworthy and honest that Ayers promoted him to replace the manager, making this 19-year-old the youngest manager of a mine and in charge of 350 men. Then fate reached out and gave me a gentle nudge. My employer lost his fortune, and I lost my position. This was my first real defeat, and even though it came about as a result of causes beyond my control, I didn't learn a lesson from it until many years later. Second Turning Point My next position was that of sales manager for a large lumber manufacturer in the South. My advancement was rapid, and I did so well that my employer took me into partnership with him. We began to make money, and I began to see myself on top of the world again. Like a stroke of lightning out of a clear sky, the 1907 panic swept down, and overnight it rendered me an enduring service by destroying our business and relieving me of every dollar that I had. Editor's Comment The panic Hill refers to began in the summer of 1907, when a number of banks and stock brokerages declared bankruptcy. Word spread to the general public, and it created a run on the banks as depositors lined up to demand that they be given the money they had on deposit. Banks called in loans to meet the demand for cash. But those borrowers couldn't find buyers for their goods or property, so they couldn't pay back their loans. When the banks couldn't get back the money they had loaned, they repossessed the homes or businesses that the borrowers had put up as collateral. Businesses were closed, farmers were evicted from their land, jobs were lost, so even more banks were forced to close, and it just kept getting worse. America was caught in a downward spiral that was reversed only when the major Wall Street bankers and financial executives, who were themselves in danger of losing their businesses, stepped in to shore up troubled banks. It was in large part because of the bank panic of 1907 that legislation was enacted in 1913 to create the Federal Reserve System. This is the end of the editor's comments. Third Turning Point This was my first serious defeat. I mistook it then for failure, but it was not. And before I complete this lesson, I will tell you why it was not. It required the 1907 panic and the defeat that it brought me to redirect my efforts from the lumber business to the study of law. I entered law school with the firm belief that I would emerge doubly prepared to catch up with the end of the rainbow and claim my pot of gold. Napoleon Hill planned to put himself and his brother through law school by writing articles for Bob Taylor's magazine.
It was through the magazine that he arranged the fateful meeting with Andrew Carnegie, described at the beginning of this book. As was noted there, when Carnegie proposed the idea of writing the philosophy of success, he told Hill that he would have to earn his own way. I attended law school at night and worked as an automobile salesman during the day. Because of the job, I saw the need for trained automobile mechanics. I opened an educational department in the manufacturing plant and began to train ordinary machinists in automobile assembly and repair work. The school prospered, paying me over a thousand dollars a month in net profits. My banker knew that I was prospering, therefore he loaned me money with which to expand. A peculiar trait of bankers is that they will loan us money without any hesitation when we are prosperous. My banker loaned me money until I was hopelessly in his debt, then he took over my business as calmly as if it had belonged to him, which it did. From an income of more than a thousand dollars a month, I was suddenly reduced to poverty. For the third time, Hill had experienced defeat, but he was not beaten. He got another job, and all the while continued to work on the Carnegie Project. Fourth Turning Point 1912. Because my wife's family had influence, I secured the appointment as assistant to the chief counsel for one of the largest coal companies in the world. I was among friends and relatives, and I had a position that I could keep for as long as I wished without exerting myself. What more did I need? Nothing, I was beginning to say to myself. Then, without consultation with my friends and without warning, I resigned. This was the first turning point that was of my own selection. It was not forced upon me. I quit that position because the work was too easy and I was performing it with too little effort. This move proved to be the next most important turning point of my life, although it was followed by ten years of effort that brought almost every conceivable grief the human heart can experience. I selected Chicago as my new field of endeavor. I made up my mind that if I could gain recognition in Chicago, in any honorable sort of work, it would prove that I had something that might be developed into real ability. Fifth Turning Point My first position in Chicago was that of advertising manager for a large correspondence school. I did so well that the president of the school induced me to resign my position and go into the candy manufacturing business with him. We organized the Betsy Ross Candy Company, and I became its first president. The business grew rapidly, and soon we had a chain of stores in 18 different cities. They did so well, in fact, Hill's partners decided they wanted to take over the business. They had Hill arrested on a false charge, and then offered to withdraw the charge if he would turn over to them his interest in the business. Outraged at the suggestion, Hill refused. When the case went to court, his partners failed to appear for the hearing. Hill sued them for malicious damage to his character. The judge's ruling completely vindicated Hill and allowed him the option to have his partners thrown in jail. Being arrested seemed at the time a terrible disgrace, even though the charge was false. It was not a pleasant experience, and I would not wish to go through a similar experience again, but I must admit that it was worth all the grief it cost me because it gave me the opportunity to find out that revenge was not a part of my makeup. Sixth Turning Point 
This turning point came shortly after my dreams of success in the candy business had been shattered, when I turned my efforts to teaching advertising and salesmanship as a department of one of the colleges in the Midwest. My school prospered from the very beginning. I had a resident class and also a correspondence school, through which I was teaching students in nearly every English-speaking country. It was 1917, and in April of that year President Woodrow Wilson declared the United States would enter the war against Germany. Hill contacted the President, who he had previously met through Andrew Carnegie, and offered his services to help the war effort. Hill was given the position of creating public relations materials and helping to sell war bonds. When not operating his school, he threw himself into his war work, for which he insisted that he be paid only one dollar a year. Then came the second military draft, and it practically destroyed my school, as it caught most of those who were enrolled as students. At one stroke, I charged off more than $75,000 in tuition fees. Once more, I was penniless. Despite the fact that Hill had to scrape just to get by, he continued to work for President Wilson and continued to refuse to take any compensation. Though Hill had a family to support and the ridicule of his relatives put a tremendous strain on relations, he also continued to work on the Carnegie Project. Hill later said, Believe me, there were times when between the needling of my relatives and the hardships I endured, it was not easy to maintain a positive mental attitude and persevere. Sometimes, in barren hotel rooms, I almost believed my family was right. The thing that kept me going was my conviction that one day I would not only successfully complete my work, but also be proud of myself when it was finished. Seventh Turning Point To describe the seventh of the turning points in my life, I must go back to November 11, 1918, Armistice Day, the end of the World War. The war had left me without a penny, as I have already said, but I was happy to know that the slaughter had ceased and reason was about to reclaim civilization. The time had come for another turning point. I sat down at my typewriter, and to my astonishment, my hands began to play a tune on the keyboard. I had never written so rapidly or so easily before. I did not plan or think about what I was writing, I just wrote whatever came into my mind. What Hill wrote was a long essay in which he described a new idealism based on the golden rule that he thought could emerge from the war. He declared that he would help spread the word, and promised that somehow he was going to find the money to launch a new magazine to be called Hill's Golden Rule. He took his essay to George Williams, a Chicago printer he had met while working at the White House, and by early January of 1919, Hill's Golden Rule magazine was on the newsstands. The first issue was 48 pages. In the beginning, with no money to pay anyone else, Hill wrote and edited every word himself, changing his writing style for each article as well as using a variety of pen names. Additional staff was hired later, which soon led to problems on the inside and on the outside, and Williams attempted to buy out Hill's share of the business. But when Hill realized that one stipulation of the buyout prevented him from any involvement in a competing publication, in October of 1920, he simply left. By April of 1921, he had raised the money for a new publication, Napoleon Hill's Magazine, 
the foundation of which was again the golden rule. But it also expanded into presenting many of the principles of success that would become the basis of Hill's later books. The magazine's acceptance and success also led to Hill's success as a speaker and motivator, which led to even greater success for the magazine. At the same time, Napoleon Hill was working with one of the inmates of a penitentiary to develop a correspondence course, which he took to the prisons to encourage prisoner rehabilitation. Most everything Hill did during this time was successful, and the success of the prison program was significant. But the greed of two members of the board of directors, one of whom was the prison chaplain, eventually led in 1923 to the demise of not only the educational rehabilitation programs, but also the magazine and numerous other successful offshoot ventures. The bleak irony, as Michael Ritt notes in A Lifetime of Riches, was that few enterprises in the 1920s could have been more idealistic or humanitarian in concept. Yet in seeking to stir goodness in men's souls, these enterprises had stirred mean-spirited men to a bloodlust that destroyed everything. Without his magazine, Hill went back to teaching and lecturing, which led to an introduction to a crusading newspaper publisher, Don Mellett, who offered to help Hill publish the results of his work on the Carnegie Project. At this same time, Mellett learned that Prohibition gangsters were selling narcotics and bootleg liquor to schoolchildren in Canton, and members of the local police force were being bribed to do nothing about it. Mellett was outraged and wrote an expose in his Canton Daily News while Hill contacted the governor to implement a state investigation of the corrupt police department. A week before Hill and Mellett were to finalize the financing for the publication of Hill's book, Don Mellett was ambushed outside his home and assassinated by a gangster and a renegade cop. They tried to kill Hill, too, but through pure luck he escaped and fled to the Smoky Mountains, where he remained holed up in a backwoods shack for most of a year. Destitute and in fear for his life, he lapsed into a state of deep depression. Then, in one extraordinary night of self-analysis, he willed himself out of his depression and resolved to finish the challenge Carnegie had posed almost twenty years earlier. Hill went to Philadelphia, convinced a publisher to put up the money, then worked night and day for almost four months to finish the manuscript. In March of 1928, Hill published the results of his efforts, a multi-volume masterwork entitled Law of Success. No one had ever seen anything like it. It was a phenomenon, a runaway bestseller. A little over a year later, while Hill was finally enjoying the fruits of his long labors, the stock market crash of 29 hit. The bottom fell out of everything, including the market for books. Though he never gave up on his vision, like the rest of America, Hill struggled through the Depression. He lectured, he wrote, and he taught in every way he could, but it was very hard to preach personal achievement to a country that had lost faith in itself. Napoleon Hill made it his personal mission to turn the tide by creating a variety of self-help programs, but it became disappointingly apparent that it was going to take more than one man to do it. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected president, he reached out to Hill. Though Napoleon Hill was an avowed capitalist, he believed enough in the ultimate goal of FDR's policies that he committed himself to helping the new administration. Throughout the Depression years, he became a close confidant of the president's, 
helping to guide Roosevelt in his efforts to revitalize America. It is said that it was Hill who gave FDR the famous line, We have nothing to fear but fear itself. And though Hill was dead broke, just as he had done for President Wilson, he refused to accept more than one dollar a year for his efforts. In 1937, as America was finally beginning to see glimmerings of hope that the Great Depression might end, Hill convinced his publisher that America now needed a book to help shake off the mental and emotional stigma of those terrible times. He was right. They released Think and Grow Rich to such resounding success that it sold well over a million copies even before the Depression ended. At this writing, it has sold more than 60 million copies worldwide, and to this day it still sells more than a million copies a year in its various editions. Take Your Own Persistence Inventory Persistence is a state of mind. Therefore, it can be cultivated. Like all states of mind, persistence is based upon definite causes, among them these. Definiteness of Purpose Knowing what you want is the first and most important step toward the development of persistence. A strong motive will force you to surmount difficulties. Desire. It is comparatively easy to acquire and maintain persistence in pursuing the object of intense desire. Self-reliance. Belief in your ability to carry out a plan encourages you to follow the plan through with persistence. Self-reliance can be developed through the principle described in Chapter 5, Autosuggestion. Definiteness of Plans Organized plans, even ones that may be weak or impractical, encourage persistence. Accurate Knowledge Knowing that your plans are sound, based upon experience or observation, encourages persistence. Guessing, instead of knowing, destroys persistence. Cooperation. Sympathy, understanding, and cooperation with others tend to develop persistence. Willpower. The habit of concentrating your thoughts on making plans to attain your definite purpose leads to persistence. Habit. Persistence is the direct result of habit. The mind absorbs and becomes a part of the daily experiences upon which it feeds. Fear. The worst of all enemies can be overcome by forcing yourself to perform and repeat acts of courage. Everyone who has seen active service in war knows this. Take inventory of yourself and determine what you are lacking in this essential quality of persistence. Measure yourself point by point and see how many of the previous eight factors of persistence you lack. The analysis may lead to discoveries that will give you a new understanding of yourself and what you need to get ahead. The following is a list of the real enemies that stand between you and achievement. These are not only the symptoms indicating weakness of persistence, but also the deeply seated subconscious causes of this weakness. Study the list carefully, and face yourself squarely if you really wish to know who you are and what you are capable of doing. These are the weaknesses that must be mastered by anyone who really wants to accumulate riches. 1. Failure to recognize and to define clearly exactly what you want. 2. Procrastination, with or without cause, usually backed up with a long list of alibis and excuses. 3. 
Lack of interest in acquiring specialized knowledge. 4. Indecision and the habit of passing the buck instead of facing issues squarely, also backed by alibis and excuses. 5. The habit of relying upon excuses instead of making definite plans to solve your problems. 6. Self-satisfaction. There is little remedy for this and no hope for those who suffer from it. 7. Indifference, usually reflected in your readiness to compromise rather than meet opposition and fight it. 8. The habit of blaming others for your mistakes and accepting circumstances as being unavoidable. 9. Weakness of desire because you neglected to choose motives that will push you to take action. 10. Willingness to quit at the first sign of defeat based upon one or more of the six basic fears. 11. Lack of organized plans that you have written out so they can be analyzed. 12. The habit of neglecting to act on ideas or to grasp opportunity when it presents itself. 13. Wishing instead of willing. 14. The habit of compromising with poverty instead of aiming at riches. A general lack of ambition to be, to do, or to own. 15. Searching for all the shortcuts to riches, trying to get without giving a fair equivalent, usually reflected in the habit of gambling or trying to drive unfair bargains. 16. Fear of criticism, resulting in failure to create plans and put them into action because of what other people might think, do, or say. This is one of your most dangerous enemies because it often exists in your subconscious mind and you may not even know it is there. See the six basic fears in the last chapter. If you fear criticism. Following is an examination of the symptoms of the fear of criticism. The majority of people permit relatives, friends, and the public at large to influence them so that they cannot live their own lives because they fear criticism. Many people make mistakes in marriage, but stay married, then go through life miserable and unhappy because they fear criticism. Anyone who has submitted to this form of fear knows the irreparable damage it does by destroying one's ambition and the desire to achieve. Millions of people neglect to go back and get an education after having left school because they fear criticism. Countless numbers of men and women permit relatives to wreck their lives in the name of family duty because they fear criticism. Duty does not require you to submit to the destruction of your personal ambitions and the right to live your own life in your own way. People refuse to take chances in business because they fear the criticism that may follow if they fail. The fear of criticism in such cases is stronger than the desire for success. Too many people refuse to set high goals for themselves because they fear the criticism of relatives and friends who may say, Don't aim so high, people will think you're crazy. When Andrew Carnegie suggested that I devote 20 years to the organization of a philosophy of individual achievement, my first impulse was fear of what people might say. His suggestion was far greater than anything I had ever conceived for myself. My first instinct was to create excuses, all of them traceable to the fear of criticism. Something inside of me said, You can't do it. The job is too big, 
and requires too much time. What will your relatives think of you? How will you earn a living? No one has ever organized a philosophy of success. What right have you to believe you can do it? Who are you anyway to aim so high? Remember your humble birth. What do you know about philosophy? People will think you are crazy, and they did. Why hasn't some other person done this before now? These and many other questions flashed into my mind. It seemed as if the whole world had suddenly turned its attention to me with a purpose of ridiculing me into giving up all desire to carry out Mr. Carnegie's suggestion. Later in life, after having analyzed thousands of people, I discovered that most ideas are stillborn. To grow, ideas need the breath of life injected into them through definite plans of immediate action. The time to nurse an idea is at the time of its birth. Every minute it lives gives it a better chance of surviving. The fear of criticism is what kills most ideas that never reach the planning and action stage. Breaks can be made to order. Many people believe that success is the result of lucky breaks. There may be something to that, but if you depend upon luck, you will almost surely be disappointed. The only break anyone can afford to rely on is a self-made break. These come through the application of persistence. The starting point is definiteness of purpose. Editor's Comments In 1999, Mark Myers, editor of one of the country's most influential self-help newsletters, Bottom Line Personal, wrote a book entitled How to Make Luck, Seven Secrets Lucky People Use to Succeed. In it, he tells of a study that was done by the psychology department at the University of Herefordshire near London. They assembled a group of people, half of whom either thought themselves lucky or were considered to be lucky by others. The other half of the group believed they were unlucky. They were all brought to campus to watch a computerized random coin toss. Each person watched as a cartoon elf came on screen and flipped a coin. Each was asked to call heads or tails. The results of the experiment proved that the unlucky group guessed right approximately the same number of times as the lucky group. In follow-up interviews, the researchers concluded that the only difference between so-called lucky and unlucky people was that the lucky people tended to remember the good things that had happened in their lives, and those that thought they were unlucky tended to dwell on the bad things. The scientific fact is that luck in terms of calling a coin toss, spinning a wheel, or turning a card is completely random, and there's nothing we can do about it. All we can control is what we say and do. Everything else that happens to us depends upon the actions of others and the random world in which we live. Then why do some people seem to be so lucky and get all the lucky breaks? Myers says it is because, unlike luck, lucky breaks are something you can control. And lucky people, whether they know it or not, have taken specific steps to make their good luck. You can influence lucky breaks in two ways. You have to intentionally put yourself in luck's way, and you must make people want to help you because they believe that you deserve their help. Once you have let the world know you are ready for a break, Luck is largely a matter of being introduced to opportunities by people who open doors for us. Myers calls these people gatekeepers. 
Gatekeepers offer help not only out of goodwill, but also because they hope you will help them in return when you are in a position to do so. People who are lucky make it a point to impress their gatekeepers so that they will be the first to come to mind when opportunities arise. Your gatekeepers must believe that you deserve a break and that it is worth it to them to give you one. One of the best ways to do that is simply to behave and act lucky. If you act like a loser, people think you are a loser. If you perceive yourself as lucky, it will be easier for others to see you that way. And if you are believed to be a lucky person, your chances of receiving lucky opportunities will increase, partly because others hope some of your luck will rub off on them. This is the biggest secret lucky people know. They know that when they seem lucky, more people want to help them. There are people waiting to make a difference in your life if you show them you are willing to make an effort and that you are enthusiastic. Mark Meyer's book is devoted to explaining ways to do that. As Hill says, the only lucky break anyone can afford to rely upon is a self-made break. These come through the application of persistence. The starting point is definiteness of purpose. This is the end of the editor's comments.